West Side Story, Gypsy, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Pacific Overtures, Sweeney Todd, Merrily We Roll Along, Sunday in the Park with George, Into the Woods, Assassins, Passion, Roadshow. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. The list I've just read does not merely contain some of the most significant works of musical theater from the past 50 years, but they're also just some of the highlights of the work of today's guest. I am thrilled to welcome Stephen Sondheim. How do you do, Howard? I'm doing very well for having you here. I, in preparing for this, read a bunch of interviews, print interviews with you, and they all seem to begin by talking about how rare it is for you to give interviews and how much you don't like to give interviews. So I would like to set the record straight once and for all. Are you interview averse or is this a myth that has surrounded you? It's a myth. I, 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 I don't like to give interviews, no. I, I don't know many people who do like to give interviews except actors and actresses um, and even some of them. Uh, however, rarely give interviews. No, I give interviews uh, as much as anybody else. Um, I try to avoid them simply because they take up time and time is valuable. Well, I appreciate your sharing the time with us today. I'm curious. You've been uh, barnstorming around the country, it seems, over the past year or so doing uh, question and answer sessions with Frank Rich. And I'm wondering how that arose. Uh, It arose because we were having dinner one night and he has been on the lecture circuit. And uh, uh, it was his suggestion and – the man, Stephen Barkley, who runs the agency that handles Frank's lectures, is a theater fan and so he thought it would be a good idea. So he set them up. We tried one out and we had a good time. So we've done a number of them, varying size houses. We've played as many as 2,500 seat houses and um, when I say played, they're usually parts of arts programs in various cities. Sometimes they're at universities. Sometimes they're as, for example, at Avery Fisher Hall. They're just open venues. How do you keep it fresh when it's the same interviewer over and over well, again? No, it's Frank who keeps it fresh. He's, he's compiled a list of, oh, I'd say well over 100 questions. And he never, I wouldn't say never, asks the same one twice, but tries to avoid it. He also tries to uh, kick off from whatever is going on, either in the theater or in shows I've written or in the town or city that we're in, so that the um, interviews start off on a different foot each time. But he is constantly throwing surprise questions at me to keep it fresh for just that reason. And I never ask him what, he, what he's going to ask in advance because then I would think about it and would come out rote. So um, it's he who keeps him fresh. He, he works very hard on these things. And the other thing we finally learned to do, we, we got – when we did Avery Fisher Hall, some of the venues, we asked questions – we asked the audience – to write out questions uh, and the last 20, 25 minutes of each of our gigs is devoted to audience questions and some of the audience questions are so smart and things we hadn't thought of that we decided to collect them, uh, the ones we didn't use since, you know, you, let's say you get 500 of them, you can only answer, there's only time to answer six or seven, so that leaves 493 to to go through. Now, you know, the vast bulk of them are either questions that we've already covered or in other places or there are things like, you know, what was Ethel Merman really like? But a number of the questions turn out to be really probing and interesting and from left field. 
and we've collected those, and I think Frank is using them now in the stuff we're going to we're – do, we're doing three of them in January and um, a couple of more a little later in the spring. And I, I expect we'll use some of those. We've learned the secret of where he's getting his material. Then. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I hasten to add most of the things are things I, he's, he's compiled himself. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, since we're talking about interviews with an upcoming show called Sondheim on Sondheim, I'm wondering how much you can tell us about that. My understanding is it interweaves film clips of you talking about your work with live performances of the work. What has been thus far the process of creating those film segments? Well, uh, that's all James Lapine. The whole thing is his concept and um, I've done a number of interviews on film for him and I'm going to do some more over the next few weeks and he is the one who's uh, devising it. Uh, He's going to use not only film clips of me talking but also of past interviews on television, master classes I've done, things like that. And it's interactive. It arose out of a review that was done in London a few years ago, which was called Moving On, which was devised by David Kernan, one of the original Side by Side by Sondheim cast members. And his notion, which was interesting, was that I would do a voiceover introducing some of the segments of numbers. For example, uh, he, he or a friend of his interviewed me for example, about what was it like growing up in New York? I was born in New York. And that I would answer and talk about New York and what what going to school in New York and what New York meant to me. And then there would be a group of New York songs. Or he would say, ask me how I met Oscar Hammerstein, who was my mentor. And then there would be songs either influenced by Oscar or somehow connected with my meeting Oscar, shows I wrote when, when Oscar was first teaching me. Uh, and things like that. And then James thought it was a good idea, but it should be expanded and it should be visual. And so he's devised a quite remarkable set, which uh, is sort of like a visual puzzle made of television screens, but not television screens the way they're usually shaped and used. Um, I won't even attempt to describe it, and also I don't want to give it away, but the thing is that uh, not only will I be talking, but there will be these other clips and films and stills. And also I will be interacting sometimes with the, with the performers on stage. Like I maybe I'll accompany one of the numbers. Hmm. What is it like after all these years to be at the center of – I'll say one of your own shows even though you say it's something devised by, by James Lapine? Well, it's embarrassing. <laughs> It's flattering and embarrassing. Hmm. But I, uh, the reason I, I said yes to the whole thing and thought it was a good idea is because I know that as a songwriter, anytime I've ever heard any other songwriters, Cole Porter, Oscar Hammerstein, talk about their work or even my contemporaries, it's always interesting to me. Uh, I'm somebody who likes to know how things are done. And you know, it's fascinating to listen to somebody, let's say, who – who raises cattle if he goes into detail about how he raises cattle. And so I thought it would be interesting for people who are interested in the theater and in songwriting to listen to me spout about what I do because uh, I certainly would be interested in hearing an- another songwriter talk about it. Hmm. And how much 
do you have say ultimately since you're saying these are multiple interviews and he's pulling from other sources, is this a show in which you're taking an active role in what will ultimately end up on stage? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. We're, we're devising it together. When I say James devised it, I mean it's his creative idea and it's all his visuals and um, he's directing it. Oh, no, uh, of course. Of course, we, we've plotted out together and, and also with David Loud, our music director. The three of us are routining it and determining who sings what and what the order should be and how, the, how it works into the film clips. And uh, uh, yes, it's a group effort. It's interesting to me that there have been a number of reviews, anthologies, theatrical pieces that use your songs as Sondheim on Sondheim will – um, outside of the context of the shows in which they were originally written and I'm speaking certainly of Side by Side by Sondheim, Marry Me a Little, um, putting it together. Why do you think your work – it seems your work lends itself to that and I'm wondering why you think there have been so many successful versions of, of working through your catalog. Well, it's an interesting question because they shouldn't work since they're so embedded in the context – for which they're written in the plots of the plays and the characters of the plays that one wouldn't think that they'd work well outside. But to balance that, they offer great opportunities for performers to act because the songs are written for actors. And um, I think, therefore, it appeals to performers and that means it shows the performers off well. Uh, so I think whether it's a high school or a professional group or a community theater – it offers a, a group of singers or actor-singers chances that they might not have if they're just singing sort of the standard songs from, let's say, Roger and Hammerstein. Um, also, I've written virtually no two shows alike and no two scores alike. So it comes with built-in variety, which is another thing that's, I think, attractive about putting a review of, of songs together. And mine lend themselves to, to that. I read that you – you've said that Oscar Hammerstein taught you to structure every song as a one-act play and I'm wondering if that is also a factor in why these pieces have worked. Well, not every song is a one-act play. Uh, that was merely the principle of a certain kind of dramatic songwriting. I mean, you know, um, what shall I say? Huh? I'm trying to think of uh, – you know, Comedy Tonight is not a one-act play. But I think that has to do with what I was j just talking about, which is that – it is often a character who moves from point A to point B. Uh, a song generally in, in the kinds of shows I'm interested in writing, a song is, has to be necessary. It can't just be a decoration. That is incidentally not true of Funny the Arm the Way to the Forum, which is the reverse, but of most of the shows. And if, if a character is moving from A to B, it's a playlet in itself, isn't it? Um, because a, a character in a play moves from point A to point B over a period of two and a half hours and maybe even to point C and point D. But uh, in three minutes, a character can go from point A to point B. So I think it's not so much that they are actually plays but that they have forward dramatic motion. Again, referring to Oscar Hammerstein, you famously, I guess, were an unofficial or perhaps official apprenticeship under him and how much do you feel you've moved beyond the things he's taught you and how much of the things he's taught you still hold true? 
Uh, first of all, it's uh, unofficial. I mean, um, it was not an official membership at all. <laughs> you, you didn't sign um, up to him. <laughs> no, 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 no. And he didn't take students. It was just – it came through family connections. Um, everything he taught me and everything – all the principles he taught me I think still hold true. I think like every generation, we explore aspects of the generation before that hadn't been explored. Uh, so I won't call them improvements, but they are more than refinements. They are attempts to take what he had innovated in the theater and utilize those and find new and fresh things for ourselves. I'm talking about my whole generation of, of songwriters, Bach and Harnick and Kander and Ebb. We, we all took from the Rodgers and Hammerstein Revolution, which is really the Hammerstein Revolution, and um, – he, he, you know, he started as we all know with Showboat, in which he he took elements of European operetta and American musicals and a serious popular novel, and blended them all together and found a new way of utilizing songs on the stage in popular commercial theater. Uh, and his characters, if, uh, you know, if you look at the Roger Hammerstein characters, they're nowhere near as complex or um, layered as the shows which have followed. Um, uh, again, my generation started to investigate the complexity of characters and move them, let's say, out of one dimension into two dimensions. You know, you don't get to three dimensions till you write a play, but a musical can certainly get up to two, and that's what we've been doing, and um, the younger generations are continuing to do that and not only find new ways of expressing character and utilizing music to express character, but also ways of structuring shows. Oscar is not generally recognized as what he really was, which was an innovative playwright. Uh, the forms of his shows, the most, most um, experimental one he did was um, Allegro, which was a show on which I was an apprentice, uh, a gopher, and uh, which very much cemented my interest in experimentation in the theater. But a show like Company, for example, is an exploration of a different way to tell a story than the linear ways that, that other musicals had used. I've always been fascinated in exploring the halfway point between a review and a book show. Uh, Oscar was always telling linear stories. So that's one way. If he hadn't, however, found a way of telling a linear story and particularly in something like Allegro where he was telling it in an unusual way, in an epic way in fact. Uh, shows like Company and, and uh, Chorus Line and other shows that have experimented with the form would never have arisen. Hmm. Do you ever have the temptation – you spoke a few moments ago about the fact that all of your songs are characters moving from point A to point B. Do you ever have the desire – or urge to write a song outside of the context of a show, or is all your writing only for musical theater? Well, so it's only I write occasional songs for people's birthdays, and um, uh, yes, I, I did a couple of lyrics for Julie Stein, who wanted to do some songs for Tony Bennett. But in each case, even in those cases, I had to invent a little play for myself. Uh, forum is full of songs that don't go from point A to point B. But if you ask me to write a song right now, I'd have to invent a situation. Uh, and then write it as if it were part of a play. I can only think theatrically and dramatically. I mean, it's the way I, uh, it's not even the way I was trained. It's, it's what I was attracted to in the first place. I wasn't attracted to songwriting. I was attracted to musicals. Hmm. 
It's interesting to me that some of your earliest paying jobs were actually writing plays or television plays specifically, mm. 11 scripts for Topper, a number of pieces that you wrote that didn't necessarily get produced. You said the urge was musical. So was that just to pay the bills? That was just to pay the bills. And and in doing it, of course, I learned a great deal about storytelling because when you have to write something like the Topper series in which you have to tell a story in 22 minutes in four acts because you have to have the commercial breaks, you have to have a teaser, and then you have a first act and then a second act and then a, a sort of coda and it had to be told in a certain uh, number of minutes, you learn a great deal uh, about the discipline and craft of concision, which, uh, you know, I'm a firm believer in less is more. And that training was invaluable to me. So, But I did take the job, yeah, because I, I had to earn a living and it was my first paying job. Hmm. Once you had done that, did you have to work harder to get people to accept you first as a lyricist since that's how you, you first broke through, getting people to to see you in that role instead of perhaps as a guy who's been doing TV writing? Oh, no. Nobody knew me as a, as a TV writer. I mean, yeah, no. <laughs> first of all, very few people pay attention to TV writers unless they're also directors and producers. It's now television, you know, is is considered a higher art form. So, of course, there are TV writers like Aaron Sorkin, for example, who, but he also writes plays, who are known as television writers. And when I was writing, first of all, uh, I was a co-writer on scripts. I was, I was sort of the younger member of the duo. There was a guy a whole generation older than I named George Oppenheimer who was the chief writer and I was the other writer. And uh, we alternated scripts. But uh, no, nobody knew knew who I was. No, I, I just knocked on producers' doors with my goods. I was writing musicals at the same time, and so I had a portfolio of songs to play, and that's that's eventually what what led to West Side Story. But as a songwriter writing both music and lyrics, were you troubled when your first opportunity came along to only do lyrics that you couldn't show off all that you could do? I mean, Leonard Bernstein is not a bad person to collaborate with, but it's still not all yours in terms of the songs? Well, it's not a question of all mine. It's just that I was uh, – music has always been my first love and I sort of backed into lyric writing because of Oscar. Uh, yes, of course, I was reluctant to take the job with West Side Story and it was Oscar who told me to. He said, I know it's frustrating for you but you will learn a great deal from working with guys of this caliber, meaning uh, Jerry Robbins and Leonard Bernstein and Arthur Lawrence. And I did indeed. And uh, so when Gypsy came along, I was supposed to do the music. But Ethel Merman didn't want to take a chance on an unknown writer. So again, I was relegated to just writing lyrics, which again, I didn't want to do. But again, Oscar stepped in and said, this show will teach you something about writing for a star personality. And that would be good for you. And also, it was a very brief period of writing. I only had to take six months out of my life to do that. We, we wrote the whole show in five months mm. and um, and that turned out to be a, a terrific experience also. Um, but after that, I I'm, and then I, the only other time I ever did it was with Richard Rogers on Do I Her Waltz and that was because Oscar, when he was dying uh, and knew he was dying, said that he thought that Richard would feel lonely and in need of a collaborator and would I consider doing it? And I said, well, you know, if a project comes along that interests me, sure, why not? And um, Rogers sent a number of, of ideas to me, none of which sparked me at all. But then Arthur came up with the idea of doing a musical of his play, 
time of the cuckoo. And I thought, okay, you know, Arthur and I liked writing with each other a lot. And I thought this was a way of paying off an, uh, not an obligation, but a, a semi-promise hmm. that I had made Oscar. But that I was very reluctant to do that. And that was not a good experience. But that's the last time I've done it. You were either still in progress or or pretty much complete with working on an annotated edition or I've heard it might even be two volumes of your complete lyrics. So there you are looking at your work totally as a lyricist and I'm wondering for what that experience has been like for you. It's been fun. Um, I was commissioned to do it 14 years ago. But I only got to work on it three years ago. And it, yes, it has turned out to be two volumes. And it's all the lyrics I've written. It's called Finishing the Hat. It's all the lyrics I've written, uh, including cutout lyrics. And um, it actually starts with Saturday Night, but there are a sprinkling of earlier lyrics in it. I'm not going to put all the lyrics from my college show and from my prep school show in there. But um, starting with Saturday Night, they're all there. And then there are little commentaries on the individual lyrics, not every single one, but about every three lyrics, there's a commentary. Sometimes they're quite long. They turn into little essays, really, on lyric writing on on the theater. Is it going to look like theater. the Talmud? Is <laughs> it going to have the oh, lyrics? I, yeah, that, that, that was yeah, that was my joke was that, that it would only sell to Olympic shot putters. But um, <laughs> no, but it's in two. That's why it's in two volumes. But yeah, it's going to be very long, and it is very long. I finished the revisions last week, as a matter of fact, of the first volume, and uh, it'll be published next fall. You once said that Oscar Hammerstein's lyrics don't read very well on the page, but the Cole Porters were very entertaining. So how do you rate Sondheim's lyrics on paper? Um, Without being uh, immodest about it, I hope, uh, they read very well, which is one of the reasons I agreed to do the book. I write conversational lyrics. Uh, Oscar does not. So his lyrics lie rather flat on the page. They're quite written as opposed to conversational, whereas Cole Porters, though they're written – are written in a kind of jaunty light verse with a great deal of cleverness in them. They are, like any good light verse, they, they, there's a great deal of wordplay in them and ingenious ideas, which is not what Oscar's lyrics are about. Oscar's lyrics are about heartfelt characters and often characters who are rather simple characters. Uh, so some lyrics read well and some don't, and generally mine read well even if even if they're not good hmm. but they're very readable uh, at least that's my opinion and uh, uh, that's why I agreed to do it hmm. the introduction of the book in fact I make this exact point that you know lyrics do not exist on paper they only exist with music they are not poetry poetry is about you know concision and uh, lyrics are about giving room for the music to breathe and um, and vice versa so you look at, oh, what a beautiful morning, oh, what a beautiful day. It's just not very interesting when you look at it on paper. When you hear it spun by Rogers' music, it becomes something else entirely. In doing the annotations for the book, which, as you say, summer brief, summer long, is your effort to describe the process of how the song came about or is it a jumping off point for larger stories about the shows from which they came? Both of the above. There's a lot of how I solve certain lyric problems and there's a lot about what happened in the theatrical experience and anecdotes about the performers who sang them. And uh, yeah, it's it's a mixture of everything. I wanted to keep it. I don't want it to be an academic read. At the same time, I don't want it to be a gossip read either. So it's a combination of both. Hmm. 
Moving from the lyrics to the music, you've already mentioned several times Funny Thing Happened the Way to the Forum, which was your first Broadway opportunity to do both music and lyrics. But you say it was an uncharacteristic show in a lot of ways and I've heard you know, some people have described it as the songs were needed to give you a break from laughing. That was Bert Shevelov's. Uh, he and Larry Gelbart wrote the book and it was Bert's idea. And uh, he said, you know, this score has got to be exactly the reverse of what you've been taught. This is not about songs moving the action forward, but as respites from the action. And as they wrote the book, it, I found it so brilliant. I said, this, I don't see any need for the songs. He said, oh, yes, yes. He, he said, you can't just keep people laughing all the time or they'll get tired and bored. He said, you have to change the pace. He said, uh, Plautus did it. There were songs in the Plautus plays. Shakespeare did it. I mean, you know. Sometimes, sometimes you put in songs for reason of contrast and of variety. And he said each song should take one idea and savor it as opposed to moving from point A to point B, which was in fact, except for Oscar, virtually the way all songs were written in the so-called golden age in the 20s and 30s. Cole Porter's songs do not go from A to B. Let's do it is one idea spun out over a long number of verses or you're the top, each one of which builds on the one before it or is a variety of the one before it, and they take one idea and savor it. Mm-hmm. And that's that was very hard for me to do because uh, all my instincts and my training were uh, just the reverse, which is not to sit on one idea, but to constantly infuse a song with new ideas virtually every other line. Um, one of the skills you acquire when you write that kind of song is how to pack enough information so that you can keep surprising the listener at the same time, not allowing the music to carry it along so it doesn't go so fast that the listener gets confused. So that's the balancing act. That's the high wire act is packing it enough without overpacking it. And, you know, the more you, you work, the harder it gets to do. It's very hard to do. Certainly Forum was a great success. The two shows that followed, Anyone Can Whistle and Do I Hear a Waltz, were not great successes. And you had a period of years before – it was really five years before your work was seen on Broadway again. And at that time, still Broadway was was the be-all and the end-all. It's not that there were new musicals being developed in regional theaters. They were brand new. What were you doing in those five years? Because then Company and Follies – came as a one-two punch in 1970 and 71. Yeah, but when do you think Company and Follies got written? So it was over that whole period. Sure. I started on Follies right away after the beginning of those five years. Jim Goldman and I worked on that for, uh, I'd say, probably a year and a half. And, um, I mean, I can't plot out exactly what happened in in, in those years. Uh, Also, I also wrote a TV musical called Evening Primrose. So no, those were not uh, those were not idle years at all, but uh, that's why Follies followed Company the next season because it was ready. Hmm. In fact, Follies was ready, and uh, we wanted Hal to direct it, but he got interested in Company, and he said, "Okay, I'll tell you what, I'll do Follies if you let me do Company first. Hmm. So we put Follies up on the shelf until Company got on the stage, and then went back and did our revisions of Follies, and that went on the next season. It seems that for the past number of years, we've had at least one, if not two, Stephen Sondheim shows on Broadway every year. Uh, 
in Revival mostly and we also had Roadshow at the public and Assassins finally made it to Broadway after a number of years, only a few years ago. It strikes me that you could probably spend all of your time dealing with the various revivals of your shows and I'm wondering how involved you choose to be because there are countless productions, not just on Broadway. I'm only involved in casting, directly involved in casting. Then I let the director go at it and then come in and give notes when the time comes during rehearsals. I do not hang around the revivals uh, during the rehearsals. And so there isn't a great deal for me to do. If something seems to need revision, I'll do that. I mean, when, for example, when we did Follies in London, um, Cameron McIntosh, the producer, wanted us to make some changes. And so – and James agreed with him. So I went along and wrote four new songs. So uh, nothing's ever written in stone as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. But there has to be a good reason for for revisions. Uh, we made some small revisions for Assassins. Um, George Firth and I made a number of revisions over a period of years. To Merrily We Roll Along until we got it the way we want it and w- – which we finally did in Leicester, England. But apart from those small Revisions. They don't take a great deal of time or effort. Well, they take effort but not a lot of time. Uh, no, I stay away and either enjoy or not enjoy them. Hmm. It's interesting that among those revivals have been a number of somewhat scaled-down versions of the shows, some of them originating at the Menier Chocolate Factory in London and also in the style that John Doyle developed at the Watermill, even if they didn't all start there. What is – your feeling about these smaller versions of shows that in some cases were quite elaborate, let alone now seeing versions where the people are playing the instruments themselves. Uh, it, it varies from, from show to show. I think Duell's productions were just terrific, um, both of Sweeney and company. And I thought he did a dazzling job on Roadshow and took a piece that we've been trying to solve for a long time and, and helped us solve it. Um, sometimes with the small revivals, I miss this full-sized orchestra, but um, sometimes not. You know, for example, Sweeney Todd. I conceive Sweeney Todd as an intimate show. It was Hal who wanted to make it into an epic show, and I figured when he wanted that because he likes to direct. You know, he's one of the reasons he directs operas is he has a feeling for big theater and uh, epic theater, and I knew that if he did it, then someday I could do it intimately, whereas vice versa would probably not be true. If it was done intimately, it would be unlikely that anybody would ever do it epically. So as far as I'm concerned, both Hal's and Doyle's productions are, to me, equally satisfying. Hmm. You mentioned that Hal likes opera, likes scale. Certainly some of your work has been done by opera companies and some people even like to talk about it as opera. I read that you prefer – to talk about, at least in the case of Night Music and Sweeney Todd, is that they're more perhaps operetta. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about this labeling and about opera companies and opera singers tackling musical theater? Some, sometimes opera singers and opera companies tackle musical theater very well and sometimes not. Um, labels are labels and I've said many times and it's glib but it's I think true – that an opera is something done in an opera house in front of an opera audience. Now, if there's a lot of dialogue, it's not going to work very well in an opera house, is it? 
whereas you know the original Carmen had quite a quite a lot of dialogue in it. But I would not want to see company done in an opera house. Hmm. But a kind of romantic operetta, like a little night music. Yes, not in a grand opera house. I wouldn't want to see night music done at the Met, but I did like it when it was at City Opera. Uh, in the same way, Pacific Overtures in London was done at the ENO, but not at Covent Garden, whereas Sweeney Todd was done at Covent Garden. Uh, that seems to me right choices. Hmm. But again, of all the shows I've written, those two and Passion are the only ones that I would put in an opera house hmm. of any size because the atmosphere of them – and the kind of music and um, uh, seems to me to belong. Pacific Overtures, I thought, might belong in an opera house because there are like maybe 12 songs with a capital S in the show, but they are uh, kind of monolithic songs. They, they're long and many of them and they are large, but there's a great deal of dialogue. I mean, Pacific Overtures is a musical. And sure enough, at the ENO, there were impressive moments, but I never felt it belonged there. Hmm. It just was the wrong venue. I want to ask you, you've mentioned a number of your collaborators, and I want to ask you just in brief bits to talk about what you feel they've contributed to you and to your work um, as a composer and lyricist. And I'll start with Hal Prince. Well, every every collaborator I've worked with has contributed. One of the things I love about the theater is it's a collaborative effort. Um, obviously, the real infusion comes from my co-writers because that's where the creativity starts and that's – we feed off each other. And uh, as, as you know, sometimes very specifically, I will ask for – you know, I will ask James Lapine, for example, to write a monologue as he did, for example, for Dot at the beginning of Sunday in the Park with George, which I can then transform into a song that I originally called Posing because that was the situation. I said, well, she should, we should introduce her there musically and all these thoughts and we can establish her romance. We can establish a great deal if she sings there that will take much more dialogue and much more time to establish. But uh, what do you think is going on in her head? And so James wrote a monologue for me and I – transmuted into song. In the same way, Chris Bond, who wrote the play, the original play of Sweeney Todd, wrote a very chatty speech for Mrs. Lovett when she's first introduced the play, which I then turned into The Worst Pies in London. So what I take is largely from the librettist. What I get from the directors is kind of editing and sometimes theatrical suggestions. One of the advantages of writing with James Lapine is he's a director too. And that is a huge, huge uh, advantage. When working with Hal, he will come to the script and then he will have visual ideas and staging ideas that can suggest other things and then he will make suggestions. You know, what about if she had a song here? What about et cetera, et cetera? But that is secondary to what I get from the writer. It's a different kind of uh, – uh, what I get from Hal is this – is creative energy about what the theater, what is going on theatrically, uh, rather than what's going on, let's say, in terms of the language or, or, or the ideas for the songs. So let me ask you then about those collaborators and what the style of each of them may have brought to you. First, Arthur Lawrence. Well, it, the style is the style of the piece. Mm-hmm. Arthur's style for West Side Story is not Arthur's style for Gypsy. So mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's. 
th- there's no answer to that question. Okay. Do the ideas begin with the librettist or do you sometimes have the idea and then seek out someone to collaborate with? Um, well, uh, most of the shows that I've done um, started with either the librettist or with Hal. Um, the ones that I began myself, the ones that I sort of started were Sweeney Todd is the first one that comes to mind and A Little Night Music, uh, Smiles of Summer Night was my suggestion, uh, whereas Merrily Rolong was Hal's suggestion. Uh, the, the Kaufman and Hart play, um, and West Side Story obviously uh, started with Arthur, and uh, Gypsy started with somebody coming to Arthur with the book, the producer, David Merrick, and Leland Hayward, the producers, get, uh, came to Arthur. Forum was Bert Chevlov's idea. Hmm. Um, Anyone Can Whistle was Arthur's idea. Do I Hear a Waltz was, you know, Packed with the Devil. Uh, Company was a set of plays of George Firth's, that I brought to Hal because George had a production lined up and the production had fallen through and he was his first play or there were one act plays and a group of plays and I said let me give it to my friend Hal Prince who has real savvy and will know what you should do with them and Hal to both our surprise said you know I think we could make a musical out of these plays then what we had to do the three of us was find a form so that you could utilize there were originally 11 plays and we ended up using um, one and a half of them and then George writing three and a half others and also well anyway I won't go into all the details but the whole point was to find what would hold the plays together and it was this third character in many of the plays that George had written only was a different third character in each play and we decided to make it one one observer, namely Bobby, the central character. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was Company Follies with Jim Goldman's idea. Um, he wanted to write a, a play about reunions and and he'd suddenly read about the Ziegfeld Girls reunion and so we thought maybe that could be a musical instead of a play. And as I say, night music was, was my idea. Pacific Overtures was, Hal, well, was Hal's idea to turn into a musical. It was a play that had been brought to him by John Weidman. And they had started to cast it and, and do it as a play. And then Hal suddenly thought it should be a musical and persuaded me to musicalize it. I thought it should be a play with music rather than sung. But Hal did persist and it turned into a musical. Sweeney was my idea, merrily as I said. With it. And, of course, with Lapine, they all start with him. Although Into the Woods came uh, from I, – I said I wanted to write a fairy tale. And so I, I wanted James to make up a fairy tale. And he said – after trying, he said, you know, there are just no boundaries to what you can do with a fairy tale. I mean there are too many choices. I don't – infinite choices. But what if we take some of the well-known fairy tales and mash them together? And that's how that, that one started. Um, Sunday the Park with George came about uh, from James and I wanting to write together and get to know each other and um, an evening's conversation in which uh, the subject of theme and variations came up and I had a I had a magazine that was a set of variations on the Mona Lisa. It was a French magazine called Bizarre and we started talking about paintings and he had utilized the Surat painting in a, in a piece he had done it when he was teaching at Yale and so we started to talk about that painting and suddenly realized it was a play. And um, so I'm – and passion was my idea. Hmm. I saw the movie, Ed Roscola's movie and uh, persuaded James to do it. Um, and um, Bounce Roadshow, that was an idea I had wanted to pursue that from reading a book when I was 22 years old. I read for, literally for decades. Yeah, well, yeah. I didn't try it for decades. Just but, that when I was 22, I read this book called The Legendary Meisners. 
and wanted to do it and um, just got sidetracked with other things and I couldn't write my own libretto and finally um, one day mentioned it to John. Assassins was uh, – I'd read a play called Assassins and always thought when I saw the title, I just thought, wouldn't that make a great musical without even knowing what the play was about? And the play was not something to musicalize but the title – I asked the author for the use of the title and therefore the idea and he said fine, name of Charlie Gilbert and I mentioned it to John and John got the same message that I did that it would make a really good piece. So that's when I started I guess. Hmm. As you're talking about your collaborators and and the musicals, I do have to ask about two non-musical scripts that you collaborated on in both cases, the film The Last of Sheila and the play Getting Away with Murder. Um, what what was the, the impetus to do each of those? <laughs> well, the, the impetus to do The Last of Sheila was that Herb Ross, who was a who had been a choreographer, he, he choreographed Anyone Can Whistle, and, and he was a director as well on the stage and well-known choreographer, both in serious choreographer in ballet theater and also on Broadway and even staging nightclubs. And then he became a movie director, a very successful one. And he said, why don't you write a movie? I said, you know, first of all, I'm not a playwright, and if I ever did it, it would be a murder mystery. He said, well, I'd love to do a murder mystery. He said, why don't you, why don't you do one? So uh, I didn't want to write it because I had no confidence in my skills as a playwright, or a meaning screenwriter too. And uh, But Tony Perkins, the actor, he and I were friends ever since Evening Primrose, which he starred in, and uh, he was a murder mystery fan. And we used to compare notes on the, particularly the trickier murder mysteries like John Dixon Carr, the puzzle murder mysteries. And so I mentioned it to him. I said, how would you like to do one? I said, so we plotted it. And I said to Herbie, I'll plot one for you, but I don't know that I can write. He said, no, no, I don't want to plot. I want, I want a script. I said, well, let me talk to Tony because Tony is a good writer, was a good writer. I knew that only from receiving letters from him, very literate, witty fellow. And I said, why don't we plunge in? I said, I'll do the plotting and uh, we'll write it together. And uh, as an actor, you'll tell me as we go along – what are scenes and what are not scenes? Because Tony would, would read a scene that I'd written. We alternated scenes. And he'd say, it looks like a scene. It smells like a scene. You know, it looks like a duck. It quacks like a duck. It's not a duck. Um, actors really understand what a scene is, which is why the majority of the best playwrights through the centuries have been actors. So together, we just had a great time doing it, partly because, you know, it's just, quote, it's just a movie and it's just a murder mystery. It's not an attempt to transform cinema into a high art form. And um, it's as good a time as I've ever had. Uh, the two best times I've ever had writing, actually, I think, were uh, Last of Sheila and writing the background score for Alan Renee's movie Stavisky. And hmm. uh, that was fun because I didn't have to write lyrics. And, uh, and Last of Sheila was fun because it wasn't I wasn't giving blood the way I do when I write hmm. songs. So uh, that, was, that was a delight to write. And what about getting away with murder? It was a similar thing. Um, I can't remember what prompted me to start that. I just suddenly felt like writing a murder mystery. And um, probably after, after I leave you, I'll remember what, what sparked it. But I don't at the moment. And um, again, I didn't have faith in myself as a playwright, so I asked George to write it with me. And again, because he's an actor, I knew he would understand the difference between a scene and something that looks like a scene and isn't a scene. I mean, I know what a scene is. 
and again, going from point A to point B, I understand about subtext. I understand all that stuff, but it does not make me a playwright. Do you think you could write a genuine musical murder mystery? I don't think uh, songs and murder mysteries go together because the kind of murder mystery I'm interested in is the kind of is a kind of puzzle murder mystery and you know, with a long explanation at the end. What happens is you can set it up, I suppose, with characters who sing. But when, when the murder mystery gets going, it's like a farce. You know, if you look at Forum, all the songs are in the first two-thirds of the piece. In fact, most of the songs are in the first half of the first act, the expository part. Once the farce gets going, you can't stop for songs hmm. in the same way with the murder mystery. If you stop for songs, you're letting the audience relax in the wrong way. Even even if it's a comic murder mystery like The Thin Man, the songs will interrupt it rather than speed it along. Hmm. You said earlier on that we, referring to yourself, Bach and Harnick, Kander and Ebb, all took from the revolution of Oscar Hammerstein. But certainly in the past 50 years uh, of musical theater writing, uh, you are the people, yourself and those other men – who have influenced the course of musical theater and people are now taking and learning from you. I'm wondering I've, – I've read that you don't like to say I like this because you worry that uh, you would – you leave someone out and they would be offended. So I oh, won't you're ask talking about living you. writers. Yeah, yeah no, living writers. No, so no. I, I won't ask you that. But I'm wondering what you see in terms of the trends of, of musicals these days. I don't see any trends and I, I've never seen trends. I'm, hmm. I'm not an overview man. I, um, I think you take an overview after, for example, of an artist. You take an overview after he's dead. You look at his body of work and you say, ah, see, he went through his blue period and his red period and his green period. Um, in the same way, uh, you know, you can chart the transformation of the musical from the kind of, uh, let's say, from the early operettas, uh, the Graustark stuff, the Sigmund Romberg, Rudolf Frimmel stuff, through Hammerstein's revolution and added to it the, the growth of the jazz musical, you know, the musicals represented by Gershwin and Rodgers and Hart, etc. And you can chart the history. You can write a history now of musical theater up until the present day. But I don't see any trends until after the trends have taken place. Hmm. Um, if, you, if you want an assessment of what's going on now, there are many – there are different kinds of musicals that are very popular. The two most popular being the so-called jukebox musical and the spectacle musical. Those are the two most popular musicals today, uh, kinds if you want. But that's not a trend. That's just what – remember, everybody said, ah, when the so-called British revolution took place, it wasn't a revolution. But, you know, when, when all the sung through musicals came, everybody said, ah, you see, that's where musical theater is going. Well, guess what? It hasn't gone that way at all. So you can't you can't take an overview till something is all over. Hmm. Have you had occasion to mentor young composers? Oh yeah, partly under the auspices of the ASCAP workshop started. Um, I mean, you know, I advised Jonathan Larson a lot. I liked his stuff enormously from the first show of his I heard, which was really original and. Um, Mulpey and Shire. I took them under my wing for a while because I loved their stuff. I got them an agent. I helped them get their first job. I mean, a professional job. So, yeah, every now and then I, I hear somebody and um, they ask my advice. I don't seek out anybody, but if, if somebody interesting asks my advice, at least I used to before I got busier, um, I was always uh, – uh, I love teaching as a profession and when you hear the work of people who are really gifted, you want to 
give them whatever support and encouragement you can the way Oscar did to me. I feel I'm passing a baton on. I wish I had more time to do it for more people, but I don't. And uh, those are the first ones that come to mind were Richard and David and, and Jonathan. But uh, – uh, I've done it with others too. I would think you're deluged with people trying to get your. Yeah, opinion. I get a lot of I get a lot of requests, and I have to turn them all down because I can't say yes to one without saying yes to all. I don't have time for that, and I don't want to hurt people's feelings. I don't want somebody to say, "Oh, he thinks you're talented, but he doesn't think I'm talented." You know, it's because it's not a matter of that. It's not a matter of that. I did teach in Oxford. Um, Cameron McIntosh set up a, a musical theater chair at St. Catherine's College in Oxford in uh, 1990. And he asked me to inaugurate it because he knew I liked to teach. So I had a class of 13 men and women. Some of them were teamed up with each other and some of them were individual writers. I'd say there were probably seven entities there, maybe eight entities. And um, I taught over a period of six months. I would go over there, teach for a few days, come back to the United States they each had to develop a project, then give them a couple of weeks to develop a project and then go back over and hear the development of the project and, and they would play it for the class. I mean it was very much a – I wanted to make it very much a collaborative class. That is to say that everybody should be listening to everybody else's work. One of the things I tried to do in selecting the students was to represent every conceivable kind of – musical theater. You know, there were there was Brecht Weil, there was traditional R and H, there was opera, there was cabaret. I mean, I want a cross pollination. Mm-hmm. And over a period of months that's exactly what I did. And then the nice thing was at the end of the six months, I got Cameron to get uh Sadler's Wells Theater and from I think it was ten in the morning till eight in the evening, they each presented excerpts from their works and Anybody could come in at any time during the day and that included critics and musical theater performers, directors. So they all got exposure to professionals who could hear their work. And uh, as a matter of fact, the result of that was Cameron actually hired two of them for Martin Gare, I think, in succession. One started and then the other one took over. Um, others others got, got uh, exposure hmm. as a result of that too. As we've been talking, you've talked so much about why you are a musical theater writer and a composer and lyricist, not a book writer. So I'm wondering what the impulse was for you to found Young Playwrights. Ah, that was because I'm an Anglophile and uh, it was actually Bert Shovelov who turned me on to British publications through <laughs> British crossword puzzles actually. But uh, the result was I've been a subscriber to the Sunday Observer since I was I guess maybe 25 years old. And I'd say probably in the 60s, the Observer in conjunction with sponsors like Marks and Spencer, which is a, a chain store over there, very, very successful, they inaugurated a, a Young Playwrights Festival, um, that is to say, uh, open to kids 18 years and younger all over the British Isles who would submit plays. There was a man named Gerald Chapman in charge of it. He was a, both a teacher and a, and a would-be director. And they would present the winners upstairs at the royal court with professional directors and professional uh, uh, actors. And I always wanted to see what the, what the festival went on for like two weeks in the fall. And I wanted to see what it was like. And I happened to be in England once when a play called The Arbor 
which was written by an 18-year-old girl about herself when she was 16 and gotten pregnant. It was a full-length play and caused a great sensation. When I say great sensation, you know, she got wonderful reviews and um, her name was Andrea Dunbar, I remember. And I thought, oh, gosh, I've got to do this in the United States. Now, when I say I, at that point, I was president of the Dramatists Guild, which is the organization of of playwrights and and lyricists and composers in the theater all all over the United States. And I've suggested to the board, I have a board of playwrights, that we start this. And so we cobbled some money together and invited Gerald Chapman to come to this country and organize it because – he had skills not only as um, dealing with young people, but he knew how to game the educational system. He knew how to get the educational system schools behind this effort. So, because you need the cooperation of teachers and principals, etc., uh, to stimulate them. Because not only does the program. I think this was true in London, but in England, maybe not. But what we did anyway and, and do is it isn't just uh, kids sending in plays and then they get uh, – the winners get presented. We also send playwrights out to schools and to teach kids who – and particularly the inner city schools – to teach kids who have never been to the theater, who only know TV and movies. They start in the morning and they write a play. They start writing plays by noon. Um, because you tell them, you know, what a play is and how two chairs can represent an airport if you've got the right sound effects. And so it stimulates their imagination. So it is an educational program as well as the stimulation of young writers. And that's how that started. I but just why not young composers? Because it's practically impossible. Um, think about it. You have to get orchestras together. The amount of money that you'd have to pay for professionals – the budget is very difficult to raise money for and it's very expensive. Also, we do not do full-length pieces because we we can't do a number of them. That would mean there would be only one winner. If, hmm. we, if we did a full-length play, it would be only one winner. As it is now, we started – when we started 30 years ago, there were two programs, Program A and Program B, each of which had four one-act plays and then we had a number of readings of – full-length plays and one-act plays. Now we can only afford one evening of four plays and no readings and – or I think actually we may be able to uh, start a reading again. But you can't therefore do a musical. Hmm. Before we wrap up, I have two questions I want to ask. You said you always write for characters. But I'm wondering if there is any particular song in your entire canon that you feel in some way – is the closest expression of yourself or who you are or were at the time that you wrote it? No. I mean, I'm often – everybody says, ah, oh, you see, anyone can whistle. That's autobiographical. Not, not at all. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's strictly for the character. The only songs I've ever written that are immediately personal – I mean, every writer who creates a character, there's something of him or herself in those characters or uh, it's something they can relate to anyway. So there's always – but if it actually is about me as me – only in Merrily We Roll Along does it occur and there are really two songs or rather one situation which is when they sing Good Thing Going at this cocktail party and everybody says, oh, play it again, play it again and then they all start talking while you're playing your guts out. And um, the second thing is the number Opening Doors which is something – that whole thing of knocking on doors and trying to get heard and trying – and getting put down by producers and the difficulties of, of getting started is something obviously I went through. Hmm. 
to conclude pretty much the way I started. I started by asking you about something that I kept reading about you. Uh, I read in one interview three years ago where you actually said you had lost your appetite for writing. I read another more recent interview which said you have a few ideas that you're talking about with collaborators. Beyond Sondheim on Sondheim, what's yeah. the case? <laughs> no, first of all, yeah, well, I have been nibbling at ideas with Jim Lapine and John Weidman, but that's been in abeyance for the last uh, – or well, we've been nibbling, but that's all because I wanted to – I had to finish this book. I, you know, the momentum – I didn't want to lose the momentum of finishing the book and um, – or the hat as we might say. Um, and, you know, I don't know exactly what quote about, you know, giving up writing that you're referring to. I do know that I was very grumpy after uh, after Merrily Roll Along and it's not that I wanted to stop writing but I wanted to stop Broadway. I wanted to stop the bitchery and the lack of community feeling and the competitiveness and the schadenfreude, everything that's, that's so rotten. And I just was sick of it and, I'm, you know, uh, <laughs> I would like to have gone to, a, I don't know, a community theater and just written. Um, but it wasn't the writing. It was, it was, it was the so-called professional theater. And it's, uh, it's not insignificant that the next show I did was a Playwrights Horizons where I had a sensational time because in those days at least, off-Broadway, you just – you did the work for the love of it. Not to make money, not to not to uh, pay backers back for the money they had invested in your in your work, uh, and not for profit theater is just great. It's unfortunately it's not a way to make a living for a playwright, but um, that is why I did that. And I mean, it was because it was because I teamed up with Lapine. Lapine had been brought up off Broadway, so it was um, it was his natural language, so to speak. That's all. But it, it gets harder to write as you get older because you feel – I feel, I should say. I should speak in the first person. Um, I've said it many times. I'm aware that people expect a lot of me and therefore it makes me much more hesitant to put pencil to paper. It's much easier when people don't know who you are and expect nothing of you. And you just you say, I'm going to show them. I'm going to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write this play that's uh, going to knock people's – socks off. I mean, you know, the enthusiasm you have when you're young and, and haven't been heard and you're hungry is you know, unmatchable. I and mean, You get old and well-fed and it's, uh, it's harder. Well, let me conclude by saying that as someone who has seen your shows, bought the albums and now the discs since I was in high school, like I think so many people, thank you so much for everything you have written and for bringing joy and mystery and sadness and beauty to the American Musical Theater and to my own life. And thank you for being here today with Downstage Center. Oh, gosh. Thank you for, thank you for that. I've, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from AmericanTheaterWing.org. 
You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.